I can go on and on about why I love Toronto, and it really has to, a lot to do with that diversity. What I like to say is that this city is this beautifully imperfect mosaic of of stories and histories and experiences. Even though they aren't always perfectly peacefully coexisting, they're still coexisting imperfectly. Hello and welcome to Unheard Youth, a podcast created at Edmonton Centre for Race and Culture, focusing on newcomer youth all across Canada. We're listening to what Canadian newcomer youth have to say about identity, migration, and belonging. I'm your host, Rose Eva Forbes-Jenkins. The title for this episode is A Beautifully Imperfect Mosaic. We got the title from Maggie Chang's poetic description that you heard at the beginning of the show. For this episode, we're going to feature conversations from the Connecting Childhood and Culture Project Symposium that took place in Toronto. Join Linda, Maggie, Sana and I as we talk about the medium of podcasting, the history of Toronto, or Toronto as it was originally known, and media representations of minority communities. But first, let's learn more about the Connecting Culture and Childhood Project. We're featuring my conversation with Andrea Emberley, who's the principal investigator in the project. Andrea and I had a phone conversation to discuss how the symposium came to be, her research into children's musical cultures, as well as how to be an ally to young people. I'm Andrea Emberley. I'm an ethnomusicologist, and I specialize in the study of children's musical cultures. And I'm a professor in the Children's Childhood and Youth Program at York University. Wonderful. Earlier this year, you put together the Connecting Childhood and Culture Project Symposium. Can you describe your role in that uh, symposium? Yes, that project is really looking at how young people connect with communities of origin, whether that be, you know, Indigenous young people in their own communities accessing materials, some of which have been sort of stored away in archives, often off Indigenous lands, or else looking at, you know, the ways in which young people connect with music to sort of connect with um, communities from which they have been moved out of or have moved or migrated, whether forced or not. And so the project really led to this symposium where after about a year and a half of doing research in a number of countries around the world, we sort of brought all of the partners together and brought young people from each of those communities to talk about having the ability to connect with their cultural past and present through musical art um, was important to their identity and important to moving and sustaining culture in their own communities because ultimately, at the end of the day, they're really responsible for the sustainability of a lot of these traditions. Like, I think a lot of the time we don't recognize that young people are being leaders in ways that we don't necessarily see as leadership. And so when we as adults can kind of take a step back and say, okay, well, you know, if a young person is mixing, you know, a traditional song with a kind of new musical form, while some people might say, oh, you know, that sort of degrades from tradition. But if we actually look at that's a way to sustain culture, that music is really malleable, it always has been. And sort of, again, rather than saying, you know, here's your chance to be a leader, it's saying it's my opportunity to say, I recognize your leadership, and can you share that with me? What would you say were some of the main goals of the symposium? I mean, one of the goals was just to get everyone here, and unfortunately that didn't happen because our participants from Uganda, all their visas were denied, so that was a pretty big (laughs) disappointment, but 
the, the goal was to get everyone in one room um, over a period of time and just to sort of see what happens organically in terms of sharing. So when you share space, what does that look like? And looking at how music goes across all different artistic practices, you know, it's not just performing, it's not just singing, it's not just playing an instrument, it's not just dancing. It kind of integrates art forms, you know, body painting, making art, materials for creating instruments, all those things kind of work together and surround and support music being made. And so we wanted to sort of recognize that those artistic practices are as important as the sort of sound itself. And so I think that was a pretty big success and that everyone sort of really enjoyed being able to move fluidly between those kinds of things, um, between sharing, between performing, between teaching and learning. So you talked a bit about some of the successes of the symposium. Can you talk about some other things that you think went really successfully about it? I think, you know, on the last day when we had, when we sort of moved into a non-academic space and um, moved into a community space, to me that was a really great opportunity to sort of um, share what we've been doing over these days with community members. And then, of course, we had um, the Nye Children's Choir come that day. So that was a great opportunity for a large group of kids to kind of see what some older young people were doing in terms of connecting with their community through music and sort of gave this real opportunity for cross-cultural learning, which I thought was really great, you know, and everyone engaging in painting and then the dancing and learning about Canadian Indigenous dance. I think all those kinds of cross-cultural, cross-generational, intergenerational knowledge transference moments were really important to me, and um, what I really appreciated was sort of really how organic they were, that they were really led by the young people who say, you know, like, if I do this dance, I want to show the kids, you know, how to articulate these words in my language. So those sorts of micro moments were the most important to me, and really sort of demonstrate success more than a sort of any kind of um, massive outcome. Although we are sort of looking forward and how we can use this symposium to sort of continue these collaborations between academics and young people, sort of lessen the divide between academia and community. And so I think that that was sort of our stepping stone for moving forward. I was wondering if you, anywhere in your research, have come across some of the challenges that newcomer youth in Canada face especially. In my own research and um, communities in Australia and Canada and newcomer communities, sort of looked at a lot of challenges that young people face and then how those are kind of compounded for newcomer youth. Certainly things like belonging and sort of challenging predetermined narratives that people, particularly in the West and those with you know, privilege and power, tend to think about newcomers. So I think young people have to kind of navigate those narratives and also find out where what their place is in community and hopefully find a place where they can both sort of honor the culture and communities from which they've come and also feel a sense of belonging and integration into the communities into which they find themselves. We certainly think about resiliency a lot rather than kind of um, working within the stereotyped narratives of, you know, sort of trauma and assuming that everyone has had a unified experience. So I certainly have worked with a lot of young people who have, through, I mean, as an ethnomusicologist, obviously I'm typically looking at art practices, so looking at how young people use music as a tool to both integrate and as a tool to sort of draw connection between communities, um, whether that's through songwriting or through singing or through, you know, community music making. Um, and so I certainly see how when supported to make music or participate in music in meaningful ways, young people certainly have demonstrated how 
that kind of contributes to their ideas of resiliency and feeling like they can kind of overcome any kind of challenges that they have. I think as adults, it's important to recognize our privilege um, and the power that we hold in communities um, and sort of kind of giving space to be an ally to young people to acknowledge um, the space that they occupy, to acknowledge that they have meaningful and important things to say. Um, and certainly through music, that is one avenue in which young people um, are really well-versed in sharing their voices a lot of the time. And sometimes we overlook that. We sort of see young people as powerless or voiceless. But really, if we just kind of sit back as adults and listen, <laughs> I think a lot of the time, and acknowledge the space that young people occupy, that we can sort of really recognize that what they have to say is important and the ways in which they say it, while maybe different from the way we say things, as equally as important. That because society sort of privileges a certain kind of adult, um, it's kind of our job to recognize when that privilege is kind of overriding the needs of young people. So I think that's kind of one kind of major area that I think about a lot. Yeah, I have to say, in terms of the work that I've done in this podcast, I would 100% agree with you. Giving youth that space to express their stories, they've shared some amazing, amazing things with me. Yeah, and not just giving space, because giving space kind of suggests that there's a power in that. Like when you give somebody something, it's like I'm allowing you to make that space. But I try to look at it as sort of opening up my own privilege and power and saying, you know, that space is already occupied. I don't have to give it. It exists but I have to recognize it because it's easy for me to not have to recognize it because I hold power. But if I can recognize that young people occupy space, their voices are important, I think that rather than looking at it as sort of a giving narrative, I can recognize it as my own issue. Then through that, I can be an ally to young people in a more meaningful way. That was my conversation with Andrea Emberley. I really appreciate Andrea correcting me when it comes to my language around sharing space with young people. I still have a lot to learn about centering youth in my discussions and a lot to think about in my allyship to them. Coming up next, we're going to hear some of the conversations that happened at the symposium. So to let you know what that looked like, the morning of the symposium was made up of many free-flowing stations where young people, community members, and researchers could collaborate in different cultural practices that were being shared in the room. I had my own corner with the podcasting station. I set up the recording equipment so that participants could learn more about podcasting. Linda Bui and Maggie Chang visited the station, and we decided to record a conversation. We started off the discussion with describing the cultural practices that were being shared in the room. For example, you'll notice the flute playing session happening next to us. Enjoy the wonderful sounds, textures, and conversations that took place at the Connecting Childhood and Culture Project Symposium. I don't know if you had anything else to say. I have things to say. My name is Maggie. I grew up in Toronto after immigrating to Canada from China when I was two. Um, so I have this really interesting experience of kind of a dual identity um, while also navigating two cultures and um, all of the, the joys and challenges that comes with. So in the room there's are a lot of really cool things happening. Um, there's this mural and art section going on where people are just um, working with paints or ink or um, markers and stuff like that to just 
be creative and express themselves. My name is Linda. I'm a first-generation Canadian, uh, Vietnamese Canadian. So my parents and grandparents immigrated, I would say, just after the 90s began. And what's going on in the room? There's some beating going on just behind me uh, from a group that's leading it that uh, I got to meet, uh, and they're from South Africa. Uh, yeah, my name is Rosiva. I'm a, a third-generation settler on Treaty 6 territory, and I'm really happy to be in Toronto. The pelt-making with the people who are digits from Australia with the possum skins behind us is really, looks really cool, and I really want to learn from them. Uh, I feel very intimidated by everyone having these amazing projects that they're doing that I feel like I don't know enough to contribute to. Oh, don't, don't say that. I think what you're doing here with the podcasting is uh, also unique and interesting. At one point or another, I also considered starting a podcast and maybe like that's a TBD because I'm taking notes today on how to make a podcast. So... I don't know if anyone has any thoughts on why is it that podcasts are a growing kind of platform and just things that like a lot of youth want to get involved in. I think also it just has to do with um, technology and like making full of full use of it um, in all the new ways that we're figuring out how to use it. And I think it might there there might almost be a kind of resurgence in interest in like voice um, because we communicate a lot via text these days whether it's like messaging each other and um, emails and stuff like that and um, I think people are really craving the sense of just hearing somebody's voice and um, generating knowledge that way. Something that comes to mind also is that our mainstream media, you know, television, radio, especially in North America, is concentrated in the hands of few and it's not very representative of our wider society and especially, you know, my own community being uh, growing up in Brampton where it's um, like that's a privilege I, I find is the multiculturalism that exists in the most populous cities in Canada like on that same note kind of we don't still don't see in our media that representation so I feel like podcasting is a more kind of democratic space where it really doesn't take too much to start up I really liked those comments about kind of representation and stuff like that because I do a lot of critiquing <laughs> of the media um, for lack of representation and I find that it's particularly bad um, for East Asians so you know I challenge you the next time you see an ad or a TV show or um, whatever wherever it might be it might be on a bus shelter or on TV or um, in the middle of you trying to play your game <laughs> just try to count how many times you see an East Asian show up and most often it's going to be, you know, less than a handful of times per hundred ads you see. And I did a lot of thinking a while back as to why representation is important. Ultimately, it has to do a lot with belonging and um, prejudice and stereotypes and stuff like that. Because ultimately, if you have, if you don't have diverse representation what a lot of people are going to be basing their ideas on are stereotypes 
that also has an effect on the people who are being stereotyped because if all they see are ideas that they're inferior or that they can only act a certain way or people just expect them to act a certain way, they're going to act that way. Um, I wrote a line in a poem once and it was, tell me it wouldn't affect you having everything you see and read saying you are worth less and tell me that wouldn't make you feel worthless. You just heard the first part of my chat with Linda Bui and Maggie Chang. For the second part of that conversation, I talked to Linda and Maggie about what it's like for them to live in Toronto. I asked them if they felt that the diversity that was present in the streets of the city was represented in the media. Maggie's answer is where we got her wonderful description of the city of Toronto. And it's what inspired the title of the episode, A Beautifully Imperfect Mosaic. Here's more from Maggie and Linda. I can go on and on about why I love Toronto and it really has a lot to do with that diversity. Um, What I like to say is that this city is this beautiful, beautifully imperfect mosaic of, of stories and histories and experiences. And even though they aren't always, you know, perfectly peacefully coexisting, they're still coexisting imperfectly and um, it's it's really really magical to see that I like to talk about also little known history of Toronto is that um, there was actually you know physical manifestations of inequality for example Chinatown used to be where City Hall was and they basically tore it down or tore about two-thirds of it down within 10 years um, to build City Hall and stuff like that and you know if you can just imagine what it would be like to have two-thirds of your neighborhood torn down in 10 years and how they would never have allowed that to happen to a group that you know people actually cared about. Well, more Chinese history. Um, The Chinese Exclusion Act. So there was actually a period of time where just anybody of Chinese origin was not allowed to immigrate into Canada. And that was, I think, between the 20s and up until after World War II. So it was potentially in the 50s because I do know that the current Chinatown, which is around Dundas and Spadina, um, a lot of kind of that infrastructure was built in the 50s and a lot of people who are there are um, seniors now because they did come in the 50s. I think it's really magical how despite that history of just blatant disrespect and um, marginalization that Chinatown is still this wonderful thriving um, area of the city to me it, it's, it really feels like the heart of Toronto um, and you always see so many different people there and everybody is just appreci- uh, appreciates that space um, and it's it's so artistic and thriving and you can almost feel kind of the, the heartbeat of the city there um, and the vibrance, and it's so amazing. Um, I grew up in North York, 
in this area where you know everyone was an immigrant. So you know we had maybe like five white kids in our class, um, and so that was what my normal was. And I never had those experiences of you know having my food be made fun of or um, I don't know being called out as different because everybody was different. And I do think that had a, a really good positive impact on me. I definitely. You know, was trying to figure out how to navigate these these identities of being Canadian and Chinese in in high school, um, and you know, I kind of went to university, and I realized just how different my experience had been from um, you know a, a, a white settler or a white passing person. Um, and it it really made me realize how much richer this experience had um, made my life, um, being kind of this this dual identity. And you know now I'm very loud and proud about my heritage. Um, and I really think having that like positive experience in childhood has been really helpful and conducive to me being able to be loud and proud of my heritage and also to advocate for the East Asian community in North America. Maggie had mentioned about kind of navigating in a way to quote-unquote two cultures. Um, there's a term out there like I think it's third culture child. Um, yeah that is something I think will just be a lifelong thing for myself but um, there's definitely been challenges growing up between navigating Canadian and Vietnamese culture. Um, at times, it could be at odds. So one being um, kind of... I, I'm just having this memory flashback right now that my my grandmother... Um, I know this is... it's She says it with a lot of love and... I guess respect, but for some people, it might be like, "Why? What is she saying?" Um, she often say to me, "Linda, you're such a boy." Like, as in some of my characteristics and personality traits of um, taking on like leadership roles or just being very stubborn or kind of strong-willed. That she's attributed that to kind of like male qualities. Um, but I've learned that, you know. Uh, in order for change to happen, um, I need to use my privilege and my voice where I can to, to try to make that happen. Your question earlier about what is it like for you to kind of see this diversity on the streets, but maybe not so much in the media. And what I wanted to say about that, I feel that even though it's a growing trend where we see more representation and diversity, the type of roles that we still see um, East Asians in are essentialized or, you know, there's an archetype that continues to um, exist and persist. So one being for, in particular, female um, East Asians is that she's still docile. She still kind of plays up her um, maybe sexuality, um, you know, all these things that, and that comes down to, like, who is it behind the script, right? Who are writing these scripts? Who are casting um, 
the people playing these roles and it's it's hard like for I'm assuming actresses who identify as East Asian you know do I do I kind of forego this role and not be in the media or do I take this up knowing that it's not really what I want to be doing and another thing I wanted to kind of talk about was that it's been really interesting seeing the dynamics of um, people from all over the world in at the symposium because it's really made me notice how conditioned or policed we are in terms of taking up space so if you go to an event that's like predominantly you know people who grew up in Canada 95% of the time the people who take up the most space are gonna be white men but here that we have like people from all over the world where there isn't that kind of dominance narrative of you needing to be small and the imposter syndrome and confidence issues that arise from kind of being stereotyped and, and fighting against racism. That was the last part of my conversation with Maggie Chang and Linda Bowie. The next discussion that we're going to feature took place during the second half of the day. In the afternoon of the symposium, there were presentations happening in the main room. We didn't want to disturb the knowledge sharing that was taking place, so we had to be creative in the location of our next interview. Maggie, Sana and I found a quiet spot in the Kenef Tower to record our discussion. I asked Maggie to elaborate on some of the knowledge that she shared in the morning. And Sana had a question about newcomer and indigenous relationships. Enjoy this next conversation from the Connecting Childhood and Culture Project Symposium. So, my name is Rose Eva Forks Jenkins, and we're very lucky to be in York University, Toronto today. We're on the fifth floor. And we're right outside the elevators. There's a little lobby area with two chairs, which I don't think was ever designed as an interview space. But in the interest of field recording and finding spaces and making them work, we're going to use this as an uh, interview space. And so I will let uh, other folks introduce themselves. Okay, so my name is Sana. I just graduated from York in 2016 after having been in school for about 12 years, uh, which is a really long time. So I graduated York University uh, in arts and I realized I really enjoy working in community spaces. I love working with racialized communities and um, I'm just a lifelong learner. So I'm here to kind of learn about podcasting and meet young artists, activists, community-based workers. So, my name is Maggie. Um, I grew up in Toronto uh, after having immigrated here from China when I was two. So I do a lot of uh, work around immigrant identity, inequality, inequality, and dreaming of a better future, I guess. Um, through poetry and and other advocacy. Yeah, I really enjoyed what you were saying earlier. Uh, you shared about the history of the Chinese community in Toronto, and I found that really fascinating. Uh, I'm wondering when you learned that history and how did that change your relationship to Toronto as a city? 
really great question. Uh, it was actually very recently um, that I learned about all of these things. And, you know, if you think about that, it's kind of ridiculous because I am myself a Chinese Canadian living in Toronto and I didn't have my own history. Um, but I think that really just goes to show how unequal and unfair the the stories that we're told the stories that we're given the stories that are taught are basically the first time i like learned about things like the chinese exclusion act um was randomly like a lucky thing because i was working on an essay for a scholarship and it was um, from a foundation who was about kind of uh, preserving the history of uh, the Chinese community in Canada. And so it was really focused on the railroad workers um, and all of that. And I m- remember researching for that essay and I literally started crying because I was just like, Canada was so mean to us. Like the Chinese Exclusion Act, I'm pretty sure is one of the only um, pieces of legislation in Canada's history to specifically name one group of people from a specific country and exclude them. And so that was about two years ago in grade 12. Uh, The history of Chinatown, I actually really only learned about a year ago, um, last June. And it was, once again, it was a fluke. I was on a tour of street art in Kensington Market, and one of the locals was talking about how part of their history was getting all of the people who were displaced from um, them tearing down Chinatown, which is uh, which was right by City Hall, and them getting displaced over to Spadina and how that kind of meshing of cultures and and how Kensington Market really became this wonderful thriving place because they took in everybody who was marginalized and how that really created something really beautiful so you know I guess it really is frustrating in a way that not many people know this um, and they should and I think it really made me more determined to share this history um, and also just to make sure to look out for my history more because, you know, if I'm not doing it, who will? The facts about uh, Chinatown and things like that are are prevalent in in my poetry. I have one that uh, very explicitly kind of talks about it. And I think for me, poetry is a really important medium to just teach people about things because oftentimes I do come out of of a performance and people are like, holy cow, I didn't know so many of the things you said. Um, So it's a really educational piece and it's also really hard-hitting because that's that's part of the beauty of poetry. And so I think it, it's a really great medium for me. This is Sana. So my question is about as a migrant and as a settler, when did you first learn about Indigenous history? Because I think like when we migrate here, I know for me it was a totally different picture. Canada's branded as something else and sold as something else. And then slowly you start to learn about 
settler colonialism. So what was your first interaction with that? What was your first educational experience? Do you think you've learned enough? Do you think it's not enough? Like if you can maybe share a bit about that as a migrant, as an immigrant. It's definitely true that we didn't get that much information about um, the really ugly parts of colonialism in school. Uh, I kind of learned it on my own because I'm just really active in social justice circles and because I have that respect for the indigenous communities that I um, really made sure to learn about their histories as well, similar to, to the way I make sure to learn about my own history. The other thing that really struck me was that by chance, my mother and I were watching... Um, I think it was like a documentary style CBC TV show and it took place in the north and she was like why are all these people like drinking and like stuff like that and I was and then I had to explain to her about like residential schools and intergenerational trauma and she was shocked you know she had no idea that this had happened in Canada and it just it was a really weird like break for me because I was like this is such a big part of my life it seems so strange that my mother doesn't know about this um, but at the same time why would she because there I also don't think there's enough outreach for immigrants in general in Canada and so to add that other layer of indigenous people's um, and reconciliation, that's just a further thing that immigrants don't get access to. I, I just, I do a lot of thinking uh, on assimilation, what that means, what that is. Um, and, you know, I, I wrote a poem about kind of those, those experiences and uh, like I like at the very beginning of the poem, I, I talk about how my best writing, my best language, the language I know best is English. And yet English does not understand my experience or what it's like to be an immigrant. And um, that's that's a really interesting experience, I guess. And um the other thing that gets lost often is is the difference between being a Chinese immigrant in Canada or the United States or Europe or whatever that wherever that isn't China and being Chinese a Chinese person in China because the Chinese people in China have Definitely, their their difficulties, and they've faced many challenges, but they haven't faced the same challenges that we have. You know, Chinese people in China, the Chinese Exclusion Act is not part of their history, but it's part of mine. Um, the issue of representation in Western media isn't their problem, but it's one of mine. Um, and there's just entirely different systems that we have to navigate um, that we have to deal with and in some ways that like also cuts us off from the experiences of 
a Chinese person in China. Um, and another thing I, I do a lot of writing about, and it's actually applicable like across um, identities, is many ways immigrants are, are sort of in an in-between um, if you're a person of color. Because in Canada or the United States or Europe, you're, no matter how long your family has been there, you are always going to be constructed as other. You're always going to get a where are you from. Whereas, you know, a white person who maybe has only been here a few days probably won't get that. And so we're not Canadian, but we're also not Chinese Chinese. And if you go back to China in many ways, and often that people are going to comment about your different mannerisms, your different... I don't know, your accent, um, your makeup, if you're into makeup, is also going to be different. And I think it's it's really important to just highlight the unique experiences of what it is to be an immigrant. Because it's not quite either. It's, it's unique um, and different. And important to make sure that that voice also gets heard. Because what really frustrated me was the other day there was some teenager decided to wear a traditional Chinese dress to prom and some not super knowledgeable person (laughs) um, wrote an article that was like, people were so outraged about cultural appropriation, but when you actually asked people in China people scratched their heads, they couldn't see the problem. Well, that's because people in China do not have the same experiences as people who are Chinese immigrants. You know, Chinese immigrants can't walk into a space and wear a traditional Chinese dress without being considered othered or strange, but then a white girl wears one to prom and she's cool. That's a problem that we experience and not Chinese people in China. So how could they know what the problem is? You know, the other issue with like that dress example is kind of along. I am like hesitant to call it intellectual property because that's a very westernized way to say it. But for the sake of those people who understand that kind of idea better, when you are taking knowledge from a group um, for your own benefit and you're not giving back to that community in any way. You're not making sure that they also benefit from their property, which is in this case culture. That's problematic. No, I think that's a really good point. And I'm wondering if you have any like specific examples, anything that comes to mind specifically in academia or in academic spaces, because you mentioned you're a university student. Is that a space that you find that happens often? Not necessarily, but there are definitely things that academia can do better. I've I've read several critiques of, you know, people going out and researching Machiadoras or people going out and researching um, other, you know, aspects of some culture. Um, and what happens is that they do their interviews and leave. Um, and they don't leave the community with anything to improve themselves. So... And, and realistically, they don't necessarily have to give that much so long as they you know, sit down with the community and come up with a trade that they feel is appropriate. 
And that can be like interviewing skills. That can be skills working with um, video cameras and uh, other and photos so that they can have their own voices be represented out in the world. So that's kind of an aspect of that. And also yesterday I was just seeing something in like a writer support group that I, I saw. Uh, and the question was, I have my fantasy set in like feudal Japan. Am I allowed to just make stuff up or does it need to be accurate? And you know, that's valid question and my my instinct was to say well first you really need to think about why you're setting it in feudal japan like are you using japan to try to make your thing look exotic and cool um because that's othering to japanese people and then the other aspect of that is making sure that if you're writing something out of your own culture, then you should really be supporting that culture back because they, this culture has made your work richer and you should thank them appropriately, whether that's by you know pointing people to resources about inequality that people face um that japanese people face in canada or um talking about stereotypes or um other things that do something to disrupt the the racist and um oppressive rhetoric that is really common in in our dominant culture and you know it, it goes back to that idea of making sure things are fair. That's it for this episode of the Unheard Youth Podcast. This episode was entitled, A Beautifully Imperfect Mosaic. I wanted to thank the folks that contributed their wonderful voices and knowledge to this episode. Andrea Emberley, Linda Bui, Sana, and Maggie Chang. I also wanted to thank Tiffany Pollock for helping to organize the podcast's role in the symposium. A big thank you as well to everyone that was a part of the Connecting Childhood and Culture Project Symposium. It was wonderful to be surrounded by the intergenerational knowledge sharing that was happening in this space. Thank you to all the organizations that helped put the symposium together, including York University and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. We would also like to thank our friends and partners at CJSR 88.5 FM and the Edmonton Community Foundation. This project has been made possible in part by the Government of Canada. Ce projet a été rendu possible en partie grâce au gouvernement du Canada. Now that you've heard from us, we'd love to hear from you. Please reach out on social media. You can reach us on our Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram at Unheard Youth. We wanted to acknowledge the land where these recordings took place, so we're sharing the land acknowledgement that was used by York University at this symposium to welcome folks to this land. We recognize that many Indigenous nations have long-standing relationships with the territories upon which York University campuses are located that precede the establishment of York University. York University acknowledges its presence on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations. The area known as Takranto has been caretaken by the Anishinaabeg Nation, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Huron-Wendat, and the Métis. It is now home to many Indigenous peoples. We acknowledge the current treaty holders, the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nation, 
This territory is subject of the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement to peaceably share and care for the Great Lakes region. This episode was produced by me, Rose Eva Forks Jenkins. We produce this show at the Center for Race and Culture in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, Amiskachewi Skygun. The Center for Race and Culture acknowledges that we are located on Treaty 6 territory, traditional homelands for many Indigenous peoples, including the Nehio, Soto, Nitsitape, Metis, Dene, and Nakoda. We pay our respects to the ancestors past and present who call this land home.